Welcome to Tight Lipped Presents, a series of episodes about chronic pain and healthcare from shows that we love. At Tight Lipped, we're creating a public conversation about a private type of pain, and we want you to have a chance to hear from other podcasts that are talking about shame, chronic vulvovaginal pain, and the politics surrounding these conditions that we often keep secret. I'm Hannah. In our second episode, The Trust Gap, you heard from Maya Dusenberry. Maya is a journalist and author of the book Doing Harm, the truth about how bad medicine and lazy science leave women dismissed, misdiagnosed, and sick. She introduced us to what she calls the trust gap, how medical professionals often don't trust women's accounts of their own pain. We wanted you to hear more of her work. So today, we're excited to share an episode of Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties. Every week, Aminatu So and Anne Friedman call each other to discuss feminism, politics, health, pop culture, and friendship. In this episode, Anne interviews Maya about why medical institutions frequently dismiss and underestimate chronic pain. They talk about how research on medications often have few or no female subjects, and how these issues create barriers to patients seeking a diagnosis and effective treatment. Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend. A podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. When I'm not hesitating, I'm Amina Tuso. And I'm Ann Friedman. <laughs> Hi, Ann Friedman. I'm always Ann Friedman, let's be <laughs> real. <laughs> I'm pretty excited to hear today's show, actually. I say I'm excited to hear it because it's an interview that you did. Yeah, so on our agenda this week, we are talking about the subject of women's pain. In particular, how often it is misrepresented and misunderstood by doctors and the medical establishment. And also the catch-22 of trying to be the perfect patient, even as the system is failing you. Nothing heavy. Well, you know, we like we've talked about this on the show before, and I think it's a it's a topic that is really top of mind for a lot of women because we know that um, like we know firsthand, but I think that a lot of people who are listening also know firsthand that women's pain is frequently dismissed or underestimated by the medical establishment. And that has huge ramifications for how we seek care and how we receive care. Yeah, and I think one reason why we want to make it an ongoing conversation on this podcast is because it is an ongoing facet of so many women's lives, right? Like, it's Mm -hmm. not just something that happens when you are, I mean, interacting with the medical system. I feel like the ramifications of being unrecognized by um, studies and research or being kind of dismissed by doctors have this knock-on effect Um, in terms of how a lot of women think about their health and wellness overall, like not just while they're literally sitting in a doctor's office. Right. And, and the thing is that it's also a topic that comes up all of the time. Um, If you've watched homecoming, which if you haven't watched homecoming, what are you doing with your lives? Mm. But if you have, if you are, you know, if you're Beyonce American and you've seen it, I think a Bay American, a uh, a B American. (laughs) um, I, 
like that was not a thing that I was expected to deal with. But in the documentary, she talks about um, she talks about the the childbirth that she experienced and how traumatic it was. And I remember, you know, Serena Williams talking Absolutely. about the care that she received when she had her baby and the or thing, lack thereof. Um, all right. Or the lack thereof. And the thing that is really terrifying to me when I hear these women who are, um, you know, who are very prominent, very rich women who can afford the best care in the world is, uh, is that I am reminded that for black women, this is a reality. Like mm-hmm. no matter what income you are, no matter what class you are, no matter, you know, like no, no matter who you are, if you are a black woman, um, the medical establishment is not doing its best to to deal with you. And so, you know, it's like if you think about these very prominent women, I really shudder to think about the rest of us who are civilians. And some of the stats on this are also really terrifying, like all these studies that show that black Americans are systematically undertreated for pain that are relative to white Americans, mm-hmm. um, you know, or thinking about studies that um that lay out the fact that black patients, that black patients are significantly less likely than white patients to receive any kind of analgesic for extreme fractures in the emergency room, um, despite having similar self reports of pain. These are all things that just, you know, it's this, the systematic racism is jumping out and it is terrifying me. Yeah. And I think like that layer of this too, of like, Oh, Actually, the medical system, like any other system, values and devalues people in these structural ways is like, Mm -hmm. yeah, like we can talk about um, women as a group, but we have to also talk about black American women in particular when we talk about some of these statistics. Well, yeah, you the entire science of gynecology is based on slaveholders basically experimenting on black enslaved women. And it's awful. And if you want to read actually a good book about this, I highly recommend Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology by Deidre Cooper Owens. It's a very thorough and depressing and eye-opening book. And then, you know, there are things that are more recently not taking a historical perspective and just considering the fact that so many drug trials exclude women of all races, like many drugs manifest differently in people of different genders people of different races like we essentially don't have info and like young predominantly white men are setting the medical baseline for all of us Ooh, i mean like it's very it's one thing to sort of say like let's look at the racist origins of um a lot of the systems that are in place and that is that is totally valid but also like let's look at the present as well (laughs) Right. And also, you know, this is an issue that a lot of that is top of mind for a lot of CYG listeners. We get so much mail about this and, uh, you know, and a lot of us are enraged. But I, you know, like, as you said a little bit earlier, it's really important to have an ongoing conversation about it. Right. So I had a conversation with Maya Dusenberry, who's a journalist who wrote a book a couple of years ago called Doing Harm, The Truth About How Bad Medicine and Lazy Science Leave Women Dismissed, Misdiagnosed, and Sick. Um, And her book is primarily about cisgender women, we should note, um, and uh, doesn't get into every single issue we've touched on here because, my God, how could you get into every single way that the medical system is gendered and racist and sexist? But... um, but we had a really interesting conversation. Maya, thank you so much for being on the podcast. <laughs> thank you for having me. Um, I So before we kind of get into the meat of your book, and oh my God, it is meaty. There is so much here. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I, I would love for you to talk about some of the like 
parameters that you started out with because, um, you know, how, how much of the book is about what is commonly called Western medicine? I'm like air quoting, but that's a thing. And how much of it is about mm-hmm. cisgender women? Like maybe we could kind of start with some like definitions of how you approach this question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's definitely focused on Western medicine and even focused on the U S really. Um, although I think I sort of broadened the scope when, (laughs) when there were kind of studies from other countries that seemed useful. (laughs) Um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty focused on the U S and, um, is focused on, I think, cisgender women to some extent, just because, uh, you know, some of the problems I'm talking about are sort of related to the the lack of knowledge about um, female assigned bodies. So, you know, anybody, regardless of their gender, who has a female assigned body, I think has been impacted by this sort of knowledge gap. Um, On the other hand, the other big thing I talk about is the uh, trust gap that sort of affects the way that women's reports of their symptoms are perceived and and often dismissed by healthcare providers, which I think affects all women, all sort of femmes, really. Um, uh, So, you know, in that in that case, I think affects even more people, um, trans women as well. Yeah. I mean, I just wanted to ask, because sometimes when we get in the realm of the like medical and like what is the medical establishment calling a woman, like I feel like that is a thorny, like it is a thorny issue because you're dealing with like historical data that erased lots of different types of women and different types of bodies, like which I know is the point of your book as well, but I'm sure that's something that you had to grapple with. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, I mean, definitely. And also just because it's, so much of it is sort of inevitably sort of talking in generalizations, you know, like, you know, women have higher rates of autoimmune diseases in general, but like, obviously there are men who <laughs> also have, you know, so I, it is a sort of, I struggled to, to be accurate, but also sort of inevitably sort of had to speak in the sort of generalizations that form the basis of this sort of clinical research, which is, you know, talking about average differences between groups of men and women based on research that is done mostly on like cisgender people, Mm -hmm. you know, so. Let's talk about autoimmune diseases because that, I mean, there are many, many eye-popping statistics in this book, but one of them is that women are three quarters of the population diagnosed with autoimmune diseases. And I know you have an autoimmune disease. And so maybe you could talk about that Um, and how that was your way into this. Yeah, so I, um, as you know, I've been a feminist blogger for a long time and written a lot about reproductive health stuff, but it wasn't really until about five years ago when I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis that I sort of started learning a lot about autoimmune diseases, which, yes, are very disproportionately impacting women and are also just like super, super common, you know, affect 50 million people in in the U.S. Um, And so that was sort of my sort of entry into this topic where I started wondering, you know, why does this epidemic seem like really off the public's radar for one thing? And then even though I actually had a pretty easy time getting diagnosed and was 
never felt dismissed and was diagnosed very quickly. And um, because of that, was able to get treatment quickly and have been in remission for a while, but started hearing these stories and statistics about how long on average autoimmune patients go without getting a diagnosis, which is like four years, four doctors. And wow, and that's the average? Of- Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, in in one survey, okay, okay. I mean, I don't know how, how, yeah, if that was a representative thing, but sorry, um, I cut you off there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, so this is, this is one survey that yes, found four years and four doctors and also found that I almost half of patients sort of felt like they were sort of labeled chronic complainers or hypochondriacs during that time. Um, so that was sort of the thing that got me starting to hear these other stories from from women with autoimmune disorders and also with a range of other conditions um, feeling like they were not being taken seriously by healthcare providers. Right. And I mean, and also, I mean, can we definitively say like objectively they weren't being taken seriously? Like if they eventually got to a diagnosis after four years of being told they were complainers, it's like, it's not just a feeling, (laughs) you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. They, they definitely weren't. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you can, you can sort of blame that on the fact that doctors just don't get a lot of training in autoimmune disorders. And so a lot of primary care doctors just aren't, you know, the surveys show that they feel like they're not sort of adequately trained to recognize these diseases. But then the question becomes, well, if these are so common in women, why aren't we training the medical system to recognize them quickly and efficiently? Right, which which kind of goes to your um, your two questions or the two things that you explore in the first part of the book, which you've labeled the knowledge gap and the trust gap. And maybe you could talk a little bit about what each of those gaps are. Yeah, so the trust, the well, the knowledge gap start with... Um, just sort of refers to this this deficit of knowledge about women's bodies, their symptoms, um, conditions like autoimmune diseases that disproportionately affect them. And this problem was really sort of put on the radar in the early 90s, which I, you know, I'm too young to really remember that. But uh, (laughs) at that time, women's health advocates and allies in Congress, you know, sort of put this issue on the radar through congressional hearings that were focused on the fact that at that time, the National Institutes of Health had a policy saying, you know, we should include women in our clinical research, um, but didn't seem to be doing basically anything to enforce that. Also, at the time, the FDA was actually explicitly excluding all women of childbearing age from participating in early drug trials. Um, And, you know, the public sort of found out through these hearings that like a lot of really sort of important large studies had been done on just tens of thousands of men and zero women. Um, Wait, so they were, they were purposefully excluded from those studies. They were purposefully excluded. And it was, it was in part, I think sort of just, uh, I mean, theoretically for their own good, like there was a sort of protectionist uh, spirit at that time that was sort of recognizing that there, you know, there's some real risks to being a part of clinical research. And and so it was sort of like, we're going to leave women out for their own good, but also because we're like concerned about potential harm to their 
hypothetical fetuses. Oh um, this is like why women couldn't ski jump in the Olympics for years. It's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, go on. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then, I mean, you know, so you could say, oh, well, that, that's sort of nice, I guess. But like, also, that doesn't actually help women as a whole get like safe treatments if you're just like not including them in the research and then like approving drugs that haven't been <laughs> tested in them and then just marketing those drugs to them. So Right. It turns out that like protecting women for their own good always fucking backfires. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And also it's not like they were also sort of underrepresented in observational studies that were not, you know, treatment studies at all. So like for example, a study that looked at like normal human aging which was not testing drugs. It was just like learning more about the aging process. And for the first 20 years, they didn't enroll women just because there wasn't a bathroom for women on the, at the research site. Stop. So. Oh my God. Bathroom politics ruin <laughs> everything. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. <sighs> and so, and, and so the, the excuse for that kind of stuff was sort of just like, well, you know, women, cis women with their hormones, that will just like really complicate the results. We get cleaner data to really just focus on men, which, you know, is ridiculous because if if it actually like affects your results, then like that's all the more reason you need to be <laughs> including women so you understand what what role hormone levels are playing here. Right, cleaner data is like, oh my god, I can't even. Okay. This is like I had this moment so many times reading your book where I was just like, I can't even handle what you're telling me right now. It's so <laughs> it's so counterintuitive. Okay, so that's the knowledge gap as you say. Yeah, and and I think one thing I sort of at the start of my research, I was like, okay, right. So like early nineties, like that is pretty recent to be like sort of suddenly realizing like, oh shit, we like sort of have left women out of (laughs) biomedical research. But like, also I was like, okay, maybe that's like long enough now to have like fixed that problem. Cause it, it seemed to be recognized, you know, we like got a federal law passed at that point saying that like NIH funded research at least needed to include women and do an analysis of of differences. But, you know, the other big problem is that just things change so slowly. And so a lot of knowledge that has sort of emerged over the last few decades just like really hasn't been incorporated into medical education. Um, so I think we're still to some extent like there's just such a lag time that we're still sort of feeling the effects of that that. Um, exclusion that was happening decades ago in the sort of care that we receive today, which I think that people aren't aware of that. You know, I think I think that there's sort of a. I certainly had a impression that like you know medicine is on the scientific cutting edge. <laughs> uh, so. And that that was very much uh, I had a real rea- reality check on that. That like mm, no, like actually like these big institutions are actually very slow to change and very conservative and just continue going the way that they're going unless there's like a real sort of concerted effort to be like, okay, we need to update the curricula here, but like there's no sort of magic wand you can wave and be like, oh, okay, now this is all like integrated and medical students across the country are learning what they should. Ugh.
doctors are making decisions about like kind of in a high minded way, right? Like what to do about certain mm-hmm. diseases. Like how does that like filter down then to like what actually happens when real women get in contact with real doctors <laughs> in person? And like, how does that manifest in a real way of like for some, for a person who's sick? Yeah. I mean, well, so then th- maybe that's a good segue to the, to the second issue, the, the trust gap. As I started hearing stories of women who were going to the doctor and feeling like their symptoms weren't being taken seriously and were sort of either like minimized or often normalized, sometimes sort of just disbelieved entirely. Um, (laughs) I think at first I was sort of like, okay, you know, this is just like yet another space where women's voices aren't being treated with the same authority as men's. And like, in some ways that was not surprising to me. As I did dive into the history more, really sort of came to appreciate that there are these like even more sort of specific reasons in medicine that women's reports of their symptoms are are so often seem to be dismissed as like all in your head. Um, The history of hysteria and how that has been evolved um in more recent decades right um, now we call it anxiety air i mean that anxiety is real but like the number of women in this book who are have potentially fatal problems that are called anxiety is is shocking right yeah anxiety or depression or i mean stress i think is the the biggest sort of like catch-all one because that can mean like anything really and like we all have stress so like it really has become this sort of entrenched problem because basically there's just this tendency in medicine to sort of assume that like if you can't explain a symptom by attributing it to like a physical disease that you can just blame it on the patient's unconscious mind and like this sort of default to thinking like okay if it's not medically explained then it's psychologically explained and I think that's just become so entrenched we don't even like sort of even question that even as patients sometimes. And the real problem, of course, is that like if you are a group of people who have been underrepresented in research and have had your health conditions neglected by the scientific research community, like inevitably then women have more symptoms that are quote unquote medically unexplained that then by default gets sort of dismissed and it creates this sort of vicious cycle where it's like, okay, as long as we can sort of just like blame any symptoms in women that we can't explain on their like age old hysterical tendencies, then we're just like not, we're going to continue not doing the scientific research that actually needs to get done to like explain them. (laughs) So that is a dynamic that I think has, can you can really see throughout the medical system where it's like, you know, maybe these symptoms are side effects of a drug that was studied mostly in men and are go unre- unrecognized, or maybe they're symptoms of an autoimmune disease that, like, the medical system is just not set up to diagnose quickly. But, like, whatever they are, like, as long as women continue having these symptoms that are unexplained, the more doctors sort of get this impression that they are prone to these symptoms that are all in their heads. And it's sort of continually creates the stereotype that then impacts, I think, all women. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, and just like listening to you lay it out like that, it makes so much sense why so many I mean, I know so many know and love so many women personally who have 
been essentially gaslit by the medical establishment, like going in again and again to say, I'm still Mm -hmm. in pain, I'm still fatigued, Mm -hmm. whatever it might be, like things that are deeply impacting their ability to live their lives every day and um, and are getting responses like, are you sure it's not psychological? You know, like, and hearing that Mm -hmm. there is a systemic historical reason for this Mm -hmm. rather than like these women aren't making their case well enough. Um, Because the thing is, you know, and you talk about this as well, maybe we can, you can um, explain a bit more about like what your reporting led, led you to find here. But like in terms of this just shifts the whole burden onto women as patients to prove their worthiness for care. And so there's a whole aspect of your book as well about women, for lack of a better word, like trying to be like good patients to get the, get mm-hmm. the care they need. Yeah, that's been such a hard, I've gotten so many questions that are like, you know, what's your advice on how to like, as an individual woman, ad- advocate for yourself and like avoid these problems. And it's hard because I, I don't think they can be avoided. You know, women are sort of put in this catch 22 where, especially with pain, which I know that you guys have talked about on the podcast before, but you know, if you're trying to like express your pain and and need to communicate that to a healthcare provider, you know, you sort of have to like show it in some way. And yet the more sort of emotional you are about it, the more likely you are to kind of fall into that sort of stereotype of just a hysterical woman. And so a lot of, of women do talk about feeling sort of this pressure to be like, anti-hysterical to the point of being like so stoic about their pain that they're actually like under reporting it which then is not you know that's that's not a good way to to demonstrate the severity of your pain either and yeah I think there are just like so many traps like that where it's like walking this fine line that is really really very difficult for women especially to walk and yeah the the sort of self-advocacy that is required to sort of overcome some of these systemic problems is just outrageous. I mean, you know, the the women in the book, many of them went to literally dozens of doctors before they were properly diagnosed, which is just something that like so many women, that's just not a possibility. You have to have so much privilege and like financial and logistical resources to do that. So I'm very wary of like putting the burden more on women because I think transferring the burden of these systemic problems onto individual women, it means that only the like most privileged women actually get the care they need. Right. Yeah. And and you, you talk about that in the book as well. And even among women who are privileged enough to theoretically be able to access care, the fact that I think it's the stat is something like only a quarter of them or sorry, a quarter of them are too busy to actually go to the doctor or like even when they are sick, do not avail themselves of the option of like mm-hmm. even trying to enter this system. Thanks for listening. You can hear the rest of the episode on Call Your Girlfriend's website or feed. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode from one of our favorite shows, 